Treasure in Christ, I want to invite you today to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 14 through 21. And hear the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let us go before the Lord in prayer, praying that he will open our hearts and our minds to hear what he wants us to hear this day. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that even as we are in the midst of this time where we cannot gather together, we can still sing songs of praise to you. We can still hear your word preached. And Father, we can see how good you have been to us during this time, but also how you loved us, that you sent your son to die for us, but that he rose from the dead and that he is seated at your right hand and he reigns eternal and that through him we can have eternal life with you. So Father, be with me as I preach and teach your word today. Speak through me, O Lord. And Lord, may we hear the truth of your gospel. May we be encouraged and may we be exhorted to love according to your strength and your power to be a reflection of the gospel not just here in Ann Arbor, but across the state, across this nation, and to the ends of the earth. Father, we love you and give you all the praise, and we ask all things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I want to open up here with a story for you that goes back to 1994. And in 1994, uh, September 24th of that year, the Colorado Buffaloes came into Ann Arbor to take on the number four ranked Michigan Wolverines. This time, U of M was coached by Gary Moeller. And some of you hearing that name, Gary Moeller, might be cringing a little bit, though not as bad as if I said the name Rich Rodriguez. But Gary Moeller is a little bit of a touchy subject in these parts here. Well, on September 24th, 1994, Colorado came into Ann Arbor being led by the quarterback Cordell Stewart. And the game was coming to a close with six seconds left in the game. And after Colorado had scored a series of touchdowns, Colorado was up to their last play. And Cordell Stewart, with six seconds left to go, threw a 64-yard Hail Mary pass to Michael Restbrook, resulting in a touchdown that ended the game a 27-26 victory for the Colorado Buffaloes. 106,427 people in the big house on that Saturday were absolutely stunned. 
as the underdog team from Boulder came in and beat the number four ranked team in the nation. And this incident would go on to be referred to for all time as the miracle at Michigan. And if I haven't lost you already by talking about a Michigan loss, I apologize for bringing that up. But sometimes in the Christian life, we only come to prayer seriously when we have no other option like a quarterback throwing a Hail Mary when there's no other option. It's the last thing you can do. Close your eyes, say a prayer, throw it deep down the field and hope for the best. And sure, we have our ritualistic prayers before mealtime sometime. And not that praying before meals is a bad thing. You should give thanks to the Lord for what he has given you. But sometimes in life, we just treat prayer as the spare tire and not the steering wheel, to quote the great Corey Tim Boone. That is a mistake. Why is it a mistake? Because prayer is essential to the Christian. The Christian life is one that has lived in continual desperation for the power of the Holy Spirit, for the power and love of Christ to dwell in our hearts so that we may live according to his will and for his glory. But there's an issue here. This lifestyle does not come naturally. There's a pastor uh, in Atlanta named John Anwuchekwa, and in his book that we actually have available through our resources here, uh, for you, we would love to connect you to it. It's a great book. It's a great little book called Prayer and How Praying Together Shapes the Church has this to say. Praying is like breathing. And if prayer is like breathing, then it isn't about our expertise. It's about our experiencing the power of the one to whom we pray. It's about great expectations that grow in us when we have a genuine experience of the God who hears and answers. We don't need experts. And that's a strong encouragement to churches filled with many members and even pastors who feel like novices. I've experienced the beauty of weak prayers that meet a willing Savior. Our church has too. It's a lot like taking the first breath after having the wind knocked out of you. The experience makes you eager to take another and another and another. See, sometimes we think that we need a strategy or a game plan when it comes to prayer. Really, we just need to do it. We need to humble ourselves and we need to go before the Lord in prayer. It's not about praying the eloquent well-worded prayers in public. It's about coming to the Lord with a perpetual state of desperation, desperate for him to give you the power to do a work in your life. So with this being said, I want us to see through this text the three postures that the Christian needs when it um, comes to having a life of prayer that is focused on Christ. First is this, posture of humility. Secondly, a posture of necessity. Third, a posture 
of expectation. So let's begin with this first point here that we see in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. That is a posture of humility. Look with me at verse 14 here. Paul says, for this reason. And this is what we call connecting words or phrases. When we see this in a passage, we should recall what has been mentioned in the previous verses and chapters. Paul has spent the first two and a half chapters of Ephesians explaining to the Ephesian church the power of the gospel, the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection so that sinners, all of us, all of humanity, sinners can be reconciled and transformed by Jesus into new creations and that we are brought into a kingdom where diverse people are now united around the glory of God. And because of this, it results in Paul bowing his knee before the Father in prayer. Now to us, we might come from traditions where in your traditions, liturgy or service, kneeling is very commonplace. In fact, the pews have something you flip down at the bottom that you can kneel on. So you're not on the bare floor with your knees. But here in the first century, amongst Jews, when you prayed, you did not bow your knee. The posture for prayer was to stand with your arms extended, somewhat like this. And it's actually commonplace today amongst modern Jews. You can go to Jerusalem to the Wailing Wall and see this on display. But Paul is not getting at the necessity of a physical posture when we go to the Lord in prayer, but rather the posture of one's heart. When we come to the Lord our hearts should be humbled at what Christ has done in our lives. It also leads us to see what God has done in the lives of our brothers and sisters. As evidenced by verse 15, we see here in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. How are we able to see what Christ has done in the lives of our brothers and sisters we reflect upon what Christ has accomplished. Paul spent the first two and a half chapters explaining what Christ has done, and now Paul is moving here to the application. When we reflect upon what Christ has done in our lives, taking us, making us a new creation by his grace, for his glory, it should move us to humility and gratitude. But if you're not a Christian, this is the good news of the gospel. We can't do anything to save us. We can't clean up our act. We can't stand for justice and protest injustice enough to the point where we're considered we've got it made. No. There's nothing we can do that will make us have a right standing with the Father. No, only Jesus, only what he did on the cross. And by his grace, we are saved through faith 
not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man shall boast. And that should move you to a state of humility, a state of seeing how much God loved you. Today, if you are not a Christian, you can know Christ. You can know Jesus. You can know what this is about here. Call out to Jesus. Call out to him, asking him to save you, and he will do it. He will transform your life. He will make you into a new creation. He will enable you to live for his glory. He will enable you to live according to his will. And for those of you who have been Christians for some time now, I just must ask this. When is the last time that you have reflected on the grace of God in your life and how he is doing a work in you? See, when we do this, we are moved to a posture of humility. And this results in worship. It results in worship of the one who did a great work in us for his glory. Prayer is not about having a wish list fulfilled. Prayer is not like an Amazon wish list. No, prayer is an act of worship. Prayer begins and ends in worship. And this is what Paul is calling us to do. So brothers and sisters, I wanna challenge you to daily reflect upon the impact of the gospel in your life. And it will lead you to a posture of humility. It will lead you to worship. And that brings us to the second posture that we need in the Christian life. And that's a posture of necessity. We see this in verses 16 through 19. Posture of necessity. Notice how Paul is moving into a petition for the Ephesians in which he has confidence that the Lord will provide. And the ESV actually translates verse 16 here where we read that according to the riches of glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Because it's according to the riches of our father that Paul knows the Lord will do a great work in the life of the Ephesians. This work is done according to the riches, not out of it. It doesn't operate on debit. The riches of Christ's glory is an assurance, an evidence of what God will do. And this is so true for us today. We can approach our God, our Father, with confidence that he will do a work in our lives. He will shape us. He will transform us to live according to his will. Sometimes when we approach God in prayer, we can have doubts in the back of our minds that God really won't do a work in our life. Examples of this go all the way back to Genesis you look at Abraham and Sarah, God promised him that he would be the father of many nations. He was over 100. And Sarah was over 90. 
Sarah heard this promise to Abraham that she would have a son, and she laughed about it. But guess what? She had a son. And they named him Isaac, which means laughter. Paul writes in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He knows that God can and will accomplish in the life of the church. He can accomplish great things. And so Paul lists what they need the experience of what Paul has described in the previous chapters here in Ephesians. See, it's one thing to have had knowledge, but it's another thing to experience for yourself what God has done. And to do this, Paul is requesting these things from the Lord for his readers. He requests strength for the power of Christ. Paul is moving into what John Stott, who was a pastor in the United Kingdom, calls a staircase petition for his readers. He moves higher and higher in his aspiration for his brothers and sisters. And Paul starts out with praying for the need of God's strength. And this strength is for what Paul calls the inner being. Well, why is this important? Well, if we look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, while our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. See, sometimes we tend to focus on our outer self and neglect the inner being. Many of you can relate to this. I've heard stories from students at U of M whether they're current students or they're graduates of U of M, whether they're undergrad or they're in grad school, whether they're um, in their first year of undergrad or they're receiving, they're, they're in their postdoc at U of M. I keep hearing uh, in the two years that I've been back in Michigan of something called imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. What is that? It's having to polish up your outer and superficial image to look acceptable to those who you consider to be in higher regard than you. This uh, reminds me of something that happened to me back in high school. Um, I had a friend who had a 67 Chevy Corvair. It was a very sleek-looking car. It wasn't like a Camaro or a Corvette was lower than that, but it was a pretty sporty-looking car, pretty nice. Uh, it was red. If I remember correctly, it had chrome trim along uh, the sides. Uh, just very nice car. Uh, just You looked at it, and you saw it, and you're like, man, that is a nice car. Well, the two of us were out driving one day, and the engine started sputtering. And my friend said, I'm running out of gas. And I looked over at the dash because I was sitting in the passenger seat in the front and I looked in his gas gauge, the needle was on full. And I said, and I was like, Cody, man, uh, your gas gauge is reading full. What, what's going on here? Is it not working? He said, no, in fact, nothing on my dashboard works. The only thing you can really trust is the odometer. That's how I know when I have to fill up. 
but I didn't pay attention this week. So, sorry, man. Run out of gas. You look at it. This car looked beautiful from the outside, but there were several internal issues. It's so easy to put up a front. It's so easy to fall into the trap of imposter syndrome, not just in your academic career, not just in your career, not just in the uh, uh, sphere of your friendships, not just in your neighborhood and on your street. It's easy to fall into imposter syndrome in your spiritual life. You appear to be strong in faith, but on the inside, you are actually dry, you are weak, you are in need of spiritual renewal, and sometimes you don't even realize it. But this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, that they would constantly be renewed in strength through the Holy Spirit, so they might have power. So friends, I just want to implore you, stop suffering from imposter syndrome. And how can you do this? Ask God to strengthen you by his spirit. Pray this. Pray it desperately. Pray it humbly. Pray it confidently. Why do we need strength from the spirit, through the spirit in our lives? Well, look with me at verse 17 here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. A former pastor of mine, he pointed me to this when we were going through this passage, and I also want to point it to you as well. See, these two petitions here in verses 16 through 17, they clearly belong together. Paul uses the language of the inner man in verse 16, and then the heart in verse 17. He uses the language of the strength of the spirit in verse 16 and then the indwelling of Christ, excuse me, the indwelling Christ in verse 17. Paul doesn't intend to separate the second and third person of the Trinity. No, to speak of the indwelling Christ and the indwelling spirit is to speak of the same thing. Christ dwells in our hearts by the Spirit. It is indeed part of the mystery that Christ dwells in believers, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple. You might ask, I thought Christ was already in my heart as a Christian. And yes, he is. But Paul is speaking about something more than just Christ dwelling in your heart. Paul is talking about Christ ruling in your heart. Paul's choice of words for dwelling is important. But instead, he uses the word that means to settle down. See, this carries an idea of a permanent resident, not a short-lived resident. When you purchase a home, over time, that house begins to reflect your character. And this is what Christ is doing. He's transforming us into a reflection of himself. And see, when we ask in humility, God will transform us and grant us the strength for power to be reflective of Christ. And that's the life of a Christian, 
a perpetual dependence for Christ and a perpetual desire to reflect Christ. And so Paul prays for this power, but then he also prays that his readers would have the strength and power to embrace and reflect God's love. Is it that the Ephesians didn't have a grasp on the love of Christ? No. But Paul wants their grasp to go even deeper. And so he uses two metaphors to express how fundamental their love must go. He uses an agricultural metaphor and he uses an architectural metaphor. Rooted and grounded. Rooted, a metaphor of roots of a tree, and grounded as in a foundation of a building or a house. Both express and emphasize the depth of this love as opposed to superficiality. And I want to quote my main man, John Stott, again. Listen to what he says here. Love is to be the soil in which their life is to be rooted. Love is to be the foundation on which their life is built. Paul is asking God that the Ephesians might experience this love in a multidimensional way. Look here at verse 18. We see where Paul says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ. And so we look at this here and we see what Paul is talking about when we see the breadth of God's love. Well, what is that? The breadth of God's love encompasses all people, regardless of race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status. We are brought in as diverse people, distinct in our ethnicity, distinct in our backgrounds, but we are united around Christ. The love of Christ is what unites us. The truth of his gospel is what unites us. And then we see the length of Christ's love. And the length of Christ's love is eternal. It never ends. It goes on for eternity. We see the height of Christ's love we, we see this in what the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, verse 11. Hear this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his great steadfast love towards those who fear him. We see the depth of Christ's love. Looking at Micah chapter 7, verse 19, where the prophet says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. But how do we comprehend these dimensions? Well, we can comprehend the multi-dimensional aspects of Christ's love, as he says here in verse 18, comprehend it with all the saints. We comprehend it with all the saints. We do this in community with one another. I'm sure you've heard it said many times in other churches and other places you've been a part of that there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Well, I'm going to say it again to you today. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We are made for community. 
We are made for community so we can comprehend and live out the reflection of Christ in our lives for the sake of the gospel. I must point this out. This isn't for merely articulation of factual truth. It's not mere intellectual appreciation, but it is an experience of the love of Christ that Paul is after. There's a New Testament theologian named Don Carson who says that Paul is not asking that his readers might be uh, able to more articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with intellect alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He is asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge and it has to be experienced. But I just want to go on a quick sidebar here in regards to experience and how we have to temper this, how we have to make sure it's focused on the truth of God's word. See, we cannot allow experience to override truth. There are some who get so caught up in the experience of Christ's love that they neglect the truth of God's word. This is what leads to heresy. This is what leads to false teaching. And it's all dressed up with the words, we're experiencing the love of Christ. It's all about love. Here today, especially in this area, that has unfortunately happened a number of times. It happens today. We see those who allow experience to override the truth to the point where there is actually no experience of Christ's love. We must allow our experience of Christ's love to be honed and sharpened and focused by the truth of God's word. But see, you can go on the flip side of that. There are those who are so petrified of the word experience because they think that it will automatically lead to false teaching, to mysticism, to heresy, that they end up with nothing more than a cold, dead orthodoxy. See, they know all the correct details. They know all the right theology, but it's mere head knowledge. It doesn't result in life change. It doesn't result in a transforming grace that is experienced and placed on display so that others can experience the power of the gospel. And see, we have to avoid both these pitfalls. And when it comes to experiencing God's love based upon the truth of God's word and his gospel, there's two ways that we can experience that, vertically and horizontally. What do I mean by this? By vertically experiencing God's love, I mean that we reflect upon God's love and what that means for us. See, Paul, in the first two chapters of Ephesians, tells us exactly what it is that we should reflect on and how it relates to what Christ has done in our lives. For those of you who aren't Christians, you don't know Jesus, you might say, I just can't forgive myself for what I've done. 
So what I would say to you is go back and look at the first two chapters here of Ephesians. Go back online here and look at the last two, three weeks that we have been studying this book here and see what Paul is talking about. Hear what Michael has to say about these previous verses and these previous chapters. You will see that Christ is doing a work that is not dependent upon your works. And when you turn to Christ, just as we referenced earlier here in the sermon in Micah chapter 7, the Lord buries the sins in the depths of the sea. He buries your sins deep. When you are in Christ, your identity is in him. And for those of us that are Christians, let us not get hung up on our previous life before we were saved things that we have done in our past. No, let's not do that. We see in Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Let us find our identity in Christ. This will allow us to vertically experience his love. But the horizontal experience of God's love, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we experience his love by being a reflection of the gospel, of his love to the world. But how do we do this? We display our love for the world. All races, all socioeconomical backgrounds, those with the highest degrees and those who don't even have the GED. In Christ, the kingdom is gathered together and united around the gospel. And these earthly distinctions do not determine kingdom status. So we live in reflection and display of this fact. We forgive others as we have been forgiven, showing the grace of Jesus in our lives, as Paul writes farther in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We must receive his love day by day and reflect to a world that is in great need of his love, the gospel. I want to share with you just a brief story of how this love was put on display, how it was rooted and grounded uh, in Christ and his love. There was a homeless woman named Susan used to sit outside the Panera Bread on Capitol Boulevard, uh, right at the corner of Capitol Boulevard and Old Wake Forest Road in Raleigh, North Carolina. And she was a beggar. She had a troubled past. Susan was raised in an Amish community, um, but she left that and she was shunned by her immediate family. But Susan married. Um, life went on, and unfortunately, her husband passed away, and then her life began to unravel. She ended up in Raleigh, homeless and destitute. There was a man named Andy who would pass by her often, and he began to strike up conversations with her about the gospel. And as time passed, Andy was finally able to get Susan plugged into the benevolence and assistance program that his local church had. They were able to get Susan off the streets 
They were able to get a roof over her head. And through these experiences and through hearing the gospel over and over again and seeing it lived out, Jesus saved Susan. She came to know Christ and she committed to following him. And Susan was brought into Christ-centered community. She became an active member of a small group at the church that was now her church, where Andy went. She became a part of this small group where she was the lone baby boomer in a small group made up of nothing more than millennials. But they loved her. They cared for her. And through all the help and and the love, Susan finally found employment. She found herself her own place. And she became an active member of this church after she was baptized. And as she shared for what Christ had done in her, uh, her life in that baptism service, there were many in the congregation who had tears in their eyes including me. Susan still had things to deal with and overcome as time went on. But Susan's life was transformed by the power of the gospel, by the love of Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. Jesus loves to take people from horrible situations and transform them by his spirit So they reflect him in all of life and for his glory. See, friends, when we come to Christ in prayer with the heart posture that prays, that Paul prays the Ephesians will have, when we come to Christ in that heart posture, let me tell you this, Christ will do a major work in your life and in the lives of other people. You won't have to worry about not being able to reach people with the gospel because they're just not in your sphere of influence. They're just not in your context and where you're at in your life. Because guess what? Christ will bring them into your sphere of influence. Christ will bring them into your context. You will notice a love for people that you never thought that you would have associated with because Christ will show you the need to love those who are different than you. You will love because Christ has loved you. And through this lifestyle of worshipful prayer, we are given the power to see this to completion. And that's what brings us to our final point here, that we should pray with a posture of expectation. Well, why should we do this? Why should we pray with great expectation? Well, look with me at verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. We should pray with great expectation because God is able to do it far more abundantly than what we ask or think, than all we ask or think. God is working 
through us and in us in spite of our frailty. God is strengthening us and he's granting us the power to display the gospel in ways that we can't even fathom. Do you believe that God is able? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has conquered death and by his spirit we can live according to his word and for his glory? The lifestyle of prayer will make way for you to catch the vision of the greatness of God. And when we are filled with the truth of God's word and approach the throne in prayer, when we will be able to see where God is working through us and in us. God's word is full of accounts of people that were ordinary, that God used to do extraordinary things for his will. We look at Moses, a man with a speech impediment, leads thousands and thousands of people out of bondage into the promised land. You look at Elijah, who you could probably say this, this would be accurate. He was nothing more than a redneck from a redneck town called Tishbe. And what did God do with Elijah? He used him to confront the evil heinous monarchy of Ahab and Jezebel and to confront and defeat the prophets of the evil false god Baal. You look at the 12 disciples. Peter, a fisherman. James and John, fishermen as well. Look at what Christ did in their lives. Look at Paul and how God transformed his life. Why does he do this? He does it for his glory. Verse 21 effectively tells us the purpose of God and the work he does through us. And this work for his glory is eternal. It's not temporary. And so with this, I just want to give a few points of application uh, to conclude here on achieving this lifestyle of prayer, of worshipful prayer to display the power of the gospel for his glory and for the good of the world. The first point is this, just do it. And I don't mean to use an overused cliche advertisement, but when it comes to beginning a lifestyle of prayer, we have to just do it. I can aspire to paint my house. I can aspire to put a coat of paint on, but until I pour the paint, until I take the brush or the roller and I put it on the wall, I haven't painted. And I won't develop the skill to paint until I do it. With prayer, it must begin with doing it. It must begin with praying. Sometimes that's hard for us to, we want to know all the details. We want to be an expert before we actually even attempt something. But sometimes we have to learn by experience. Humble yourself before the throne of God. 
He will shape you into Christ-likeness. He will mold you and make you to conform to his image, to where you reflect his likeness. Philippians 1.6 tells us this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's pretty awesome. And then we see a second point of application here that I want you to, uh, to do here is to reflect upon the gospel every day, daily, day by day, preach the gospel to yourself. Reflect upon what Christ has done in your life. When you do this, you will be moved to a posture of humility, just like Paul did. And then third, immerse yourself in God's word. We have a lifestyle of prayer and we immerse ourselves in the word of God. We will grow we will develop into Christ-likeness. Some of us, it might be a hard thing to do, immersing ourselves in God's word. But we're able to help. We have a Bible reading plan. We would love for you to get plugged in with our reading plan that we can walk alongside of you in your journey to being immersed in God's word. And then lastly here, seek accountability with your spiritual disciplines of prayer and being immersed in God's word. Seek accountability for your spiritual disciplines. As I said earlier, Christian life is not a lone ranger solo life. It is a life to be lived out in community. And that's where your brothers and sisters come in. Seek accountability for them to help you. Invite them to come alongside of you and read the word of God together, to pray together. And man, I tell you, how we might see where the Lord is working and what he's doing if our faith family would regularly spend time praying together with one another, for one another, and for those in our lives that we know need the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And just for the gospel to explode, not just here in Ann Arbor or Ipsy or Saline or Dexter or Washtenaw County or the state of Michigan, but to the ends of the earth. Man, how we would be able to catch the vision of what God is doing here, how God is working through his gospel that were to take place. And so with this, may Christ fill our hearts. May it shape us so that we will reflect the glory of Christ to a lost world. May it move us to love as Christ loved us. May it move us to display the gospel in all of life and for the good of Ann Arbor. Let's pray. Father, as we have read in your word what you have done for us, Lord, I come to you praying as our brother Paul prayed all those years ago that you would fill us with your strength and with your power so that we might live according to your will, but that we might live 
so that others might see you working, so that others might see the gospel on display, so that we would be able to present the gospel to those who are so lost. And Father, we would have confidence knowing that you are doing a work, that we would have strength day by day to live according to your will. So Father, I pray that you would do this in my life, that you would do this in the life of my brothers and sisters, that we would be a church that seeks to be a reflection of your kingdom and a beacon of light for the gospel here in this area. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you loved us enough to send him to die for us on the cross, but that he rose from the grave and that he reigns eternal. He sits at your right hand. And you loved us enough to do that. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's continue in worship.